Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. This is our Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast number 7A of the 2022 hurricane season. Today's episode is the first of a special two-part podcast commemorating the 30th anniversary of Hurricane Andrew. We'll have two very special guests on these two podcasts. In this episode, I'll talk with the famous director of the National Hurricane Center from 30 years ago, Dr. Bob Sheets. Bob led the Hurricane Center through the harrowing and stunning events of late August 1992, when the National Hurricane Center itself was under siege. During the assault and in the aftermath, the forecasters and staff had to continue to function as Andrew headed toward Louisiana. In the second part of the podcast, I'll talk with Dade County Emergency Manager at the time of Andrew, Kate Hale. After more than three days of terror and deprivation, it was Kate that stood up and broke the bureaucratic logjam that finally brought help and security to the people stranded in the hurricane zone ripped apart by the incredible storm. We'll hear the stories of that unforgettable time when the world was turned upside down and inside out, many that you've never heard before. First, I'll talk with Dr. Bob Sheets. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. I'm recording this on Sunday, August 21st, 2022. Every time these dates in August come around, it's impossible not to think about Andrew, of course. 30 years ago today, Andrew was a tropical storm. In less than three days, it would make landfall in South Florida as a Category 5. It's hard to get my mind around that, even today. I hope you're following the Andrew timeline as we relook at the advisories and the story day by day. It's on foxweather.com and on Twitter and Facebook. Just Google Brian Norcross, you'll find it. It's been quite a journey looking back at the satellite pictures and the bulletins from 1992. Now in 2022, the tropics are amazingly quiet. It's getting weird, though there are signs the Atlantic is beginning to wake up a little bit. The dry air, including but not exclusively Saharan dust, is impeding development in the tropics. Also, the weather pattern over Africa and the eastern tropical Atlantic has not kicked into hurricane season mode yet. For whatever reason, I don't know. But there are signs things will change next week, according to the long-range computer forecast models. We'll see. It'll get really weird if we get into September and nothing is developed. But, of course, there's still, in any case, a lot of hurricane season to go. So we're standing by. So let's take a break, and I'll be back with my conversation with the former director of the National Hurricane Center and the leader during Hurricane Andrew, Dr. Bob Sheets, in just a moment. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Hi, Bob. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. So before we talk about Andrew, uh, Bob, let's go back to the beginning. You were a Midwesterner and an Oklahoma guy at the university. So how did you become a hurricane guy? I would have thought that tornadoes would have been more up your alley, so to speak. Well, I grew up in Indiana, and then uh, I 
went to Ball State, was commissioned into the Air Force. They sent me to the University of Oklahoma and one of the best moves in my life. Right. And uh, so there I met uh, Professor Yoshi Sasaki, and he was an expert on tropical cyclones. He had, he had studied under Professor Siono in uh, Japan. And uh, so that's how I got started in the tropical cyclones. Wow. So before you became famous as director of the National Hurricane Center, you were involved in really interesting hurricane research. Talk about some of that. Well, I was at the National Hurricane Research Laboratory for 15 years mm -hmm. and flying into hurricanes and directed research operations into hurricanes. So uh, that was a good beginning. Now, we were co-located with the National Hurricane Center. And then uh, Neil Frank selected me as a hurricane specialist. I became his deputy and then later director of the Hurricane Center. So was that when the Hurricane Center was on the University of Miami campus? Was, was that uh, where, where the, I didn't know that, that HRD, what we call today HRD, Hurricane Research Division, and, and the Hurricane Center were in the same place? Yes, they were on the computer building on the University of Miami campus. Uh, Gordon Dunn was the director of the National Hurricane Center, and uh, he got that move made, and the government paid for that computer center that's there on the University of Miami campus. And the National Hurricane Research Laboratory was uh, uh, co-located with National Hurricane Center in the computer center building. They were on the fourth floor, and the National Hurricane Center was on the fifth floor, the top floor of that building. So that's uh, that's where I started there in 1964, I guess it was. So that's what brought you to Miami? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was, uh, my professor again was Professor Sasaki, and uh, he knew Dr. Cecil Gentry, who was the director of the National Hurricane Research Lab at that time. And so he recommended me for a position there, which I got. Well, and so was it a big step when you went from being a researcher for 15 years to being an operational hurricane forecaster or because you were co-located, were you, were you used to the process? But Because I know those are two very different things, researching and then being under the gun to make a hurricane forecast. Well, they certainly are different. Uh, but uh, as you indicated, I was there mm -hmm. for 15 years where we were co-located. So I would frequently be in the National Hurricane Center and talking with all the great forecasters there, uh, like Ray Kraft, like Paul Hebert, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so uh, it wasn't such a big jump for me. Yeah, I can imagine. So as a forecaster, so Utah saw really saw firsthand the technology evolve from the 60s through the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s. When you look back to that time before 1992 and there was ever a Hurricane Andrew to even think about, how did you feel about the technology in, in 92, about the models and the data that were available? I guess it felt like it was state-of-the-art that, that we had at that time, right? Well, it was state-of-the-art for that time, but yeah. uh, we were lacking, no question, mm -hmm. that the numerical models were not all that great and there was not as big an effort placed on improving those models uh, as I would like to see. And that was one of the things that I brought to the National Hurricane Center was to improve the models. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and um, Charlie Newman, of course, was key in, in the process of the models there. I knew Charlie. He's the one that helped me actually create the original sort of cone thing that I use for Andrew. He was instrumental in so many of those uh, steps, a great Miami guy. Yes, he was a great person and a great uh, researcher. Now, he dealt with basically statistical models, and uh, there were limitations as what statistical models could do. And so I was pushing for improved dynamical models, Mm -hmm. and we saw what happened at the uh, uh, GFDL, Geophysics Fluid Dynamics Laboratory. They actually had a model that was pretty good. And I was able to push them to help me by providing forecasts from that model later on. And, uh, and there was one also by Krishnamurti at Florida State University that was pretty good. So we had those kind of models that were coming along, but we still had not really developed them operationally. So is that the thing that you thought of as being in the pipeline that was going to make the biggest difference uh, you know, looking forward into the 90s and, and beyond that would would improve hurricane forecasting? No question about it. And that was basically track forecasting, not intensity forecasting, but track forecasting. And we saw that take place. There was a, essentially a plateau of, uh, of uh, accuracy uh, for about 15 to 20 years there until we got those improved dynamical models. And then we saw the track forecasting improve markedly. Right, yes. And, uh, and also computers became more powerful and, and that was a big part of making all this uh, come together, right? You, you need the, the big computers to be able to run the, the big models. Yes, you, you need all of that and you need data. And right. one of the things we didn't really have was a lot of good quantitative data around uh, tropical cyclones, hurricanes. And uh, so we pushed to get better data, uh, primarily satellite data, but also, of course, the reconnaissance aircraft capabilities. And then I actually was able to get a a, uh, Gulfstream 4 to be able to get some data in the upper levels of the hurricane and that was to try to improve the intensity forecast. And unfortunately, that has not really progressed the way I had expected. Uh, there's been a reluctance to fly that plane into the upper levels of hurricanes. And I would have no qualms myself going out there and flying in that, in that aircraft. But uh, there's been a reluctance on the part of the people who operate that airplane to do the mission as we projected it to be when we got that aircraft. Yeah, they fly it around in, in patterns all around to really improve the track forecast more than improve the intensity forecast. And it has actually demonstrated some uh, improvement in the track forecast by understanding the atmosphere around the, the hurricane better. That's correct. It has done that. Uh, I had intended it to go through the center of the hurricane. I remember that. In a, what we call the alpha pattern, Mm -hmm. and then go on out and get the data on the outside. Uh, And it has improved improved track forecast, Mm -hmm. but intensity forecasts are still sorely lacking. Yes, uh, there is progress to be made, although there has in the last few years been some been some help there. So let's, let's begin talking about Andrew here as it was making its trek across the ocean. 
that can computer forecast models such as they were, really wanted to kind of turn it to the north as it approached the Bahamas and and kind of kept it well offshore of the, the Florida and the southeast U.S. Uh, so what models at that time that you had to look at did you have the most confidence in to the extent that you had confidence in in the computer models? Well, not a lot of confidence in most of those models. Now, Charlie Newman's models were the ones that were being used. uh, And uh, most of the models were recurving the storm out into the Atlantic. And historically, that's what most disturbances that came along like Andrew did. uh, They recurved out in the Atlantic. But a high pressure area developed to the north of that uh, fledgling storm, and it turned it on west. Yeah, and the high pressure kept getting stronger and stronger and eventually pushed it uh, south a little bit. So on that Thursday, four days, as it turned out, before landfall, of course, we had no idea at the time, the um, uh, aircraft reconnaissance out there couldn't even find a closed circulation, even though they did find some decently strong winds up at the flight level. And the story goes that Richard Pash was the forecaster on duty and and he's still forecasting at the Hurricane Center, by the way, um, he, that he talked to you and that you decided uh, between you guys it was, probably wasn't going to die and you keep calling it Tropical Storm Andrew, even though technically it didn't have the, the circulation. Do you remember that, that episode and deciding that? Oh, very much so. Uh, one of the great things that I learned from Neil Frank is never put a storm down and then bring it back. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was we maintained a advisory list on that storm at that time. And indeed it did recover and come on, even though it was probably not even a tropical storm at that stage. Right, technically it wasn't because they couldn't find a surface circulation, but they did find, I mean, it it was exactly what needed to be done because they did find strong winds aloft and, and it just was, uh, very disorganized, but but indeed it came back as you thought it would. And on that Friday, it was a well-developed uh, tropical storm now, but three days away from landfall. But we didn't, on that Friday when it became a tropical storm, this wasn't like, uh, oh boy, you know, this looks really, really bad. I mean, I didn't feel that. You didn't feel that at that point, did you? Not at all. In <laughs> fact, there was a good chance that it would... Uh, still recurve and weaken and whatever. In fact, our first forecast for the coast were actually in central Florida, not down in South Bay. Exactly, exactly. Then, So then Saturday morning, it becomes a a hurricane. Lixie and Avila was uh, on duty for the 5 a.m. advisory, and he told me the story that that he called you at home and said, okay, this is going to be a hurricane. It was, you know, it looked pretty well developed at that point. And uh, I guess you came in because you wrote the advisories as your name on it at 11 and 5 that day. As director, did you normally do that or did you want to, you know, be sure that you got your message out or what was going on that you remember about that day? As director, I often worked the desk Mm -hmm. for the hurricane specialist uh, where I'd gone through. And so, indeed, uh, uh, that was what was going on at that stage. Uh, Lixion was somewhat of a junior hurricane specialist at that stage. Yeah. So I went in and started writing advisories. Yeah, wow. Uh, well, through the day, of course, Andrew kept staying left. And as you said, that the 
that first track that morning was to Central Florida, and then it was to just north of the Palm Beaches, and then the Boca, and and so right. forth. You know, there is a story that I think most people that were in the Miami Fort Lauderdale area at the time will tell you, and I heard it just yesterday. I was interviewed a couple times yesterday about how the storm was supposed to go to the Dade Broward line and then it hung this left and came into South Dade at the last minute. But uh, the Hurricane Center forecast never was to the Dade Broward line. I mean, and then by that evening, by Saturday evening, it was South Dade and it was South Dade and it was, you know, it was an outstanding forecast from about 30 hours out. Do you have any idea where that Dade Broward line thing came from? And I'm, I'm sure you've heard it too, because I've heard it for 30 years. Right. Well, I think what happened is we kept cranking a little bit farther left mm -hmm. as the storm was coming along and uh, building in intensity. And so that was sort of a natural kind of position there. But uh, within 24 hours, we actually forecast where it made landfall within eight miles yeah the forecasts were were outstanding of course because the forecasts were changing it in my mind at least and I, i'm interested in whether it was in yours too even once it was aimed at south date i wasn't you know it wouldn't have been surprised to see it go to fort lauderdale at that time because forecasts that were made had that kind of variability and it had just you know come down the coast from north of the palm beaches right so you know, if the next morning I had gotten up and the forecast had been, you know, Broward or something, I, I wouldn't have thought it was a bad forecast. Uh, it turned out to be an outstanding forecast. But, I mean, that's the way we thought back then, right? I think so, yes. Uh, we were, again, seeing that high-pressure area build to the mm -hmm. north, and that continued to move the storm to the left of where our initial tracks were. So, and no, I wouldn't have been all that surprised. Yeah, yeah, there was just that much variability. I, in fact, I say even today that if a storm is forecast to come to Miami and you live in Broward, you still got to prepare. It's always going to be that way. There's enough variability in, in tracks even, even today. So by that Saturday night, I mean, we knew that a bad hurricane was coming to South Florida, right? And, and we all had a lot to think about. But besides the forecasts. You had this storm aiming at South Dade, and you lived in South Dade. You had family in South Dade. Uh, can you put yourself back in that time, that Saturday night, what you were thinking, and you know who you were communicating with? What was that day like for you, and when did you actually get home to prepare your home? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Actually, mm -hmm. my son and daughter-in-law put my plywood covers up mm -hmm. that I had on the house. My youngest daughter was here at Lake Placid on her first day of teaching when Andrew struck down there. My wife was up here with her. So uh, we had a little house here on where I'm sitting today. It's mm -hmm. a different house, but we had a little house here. And eventually, I think my middle daughter and my uh, youngest daughter and my neighbors, they all came here because it was a, a safe place to be. Well, so you're, Max Mayfield tells this story that everybody in the neighborhood watches his house and they know that when the shutters go up that uh, it's time to get ready. I imagine your neighborhood was a similar story. It was. Uh, I lived on 148th Street at that time, mm -hmm. southwest, uh, only about uh, half a mile from Biscayne Bay, just off of Old Cutler Road. 
And uh, my neighbor was a airline pilot, and he was over in the Far East at that time, and his wife and daughter and son were there. So I sent them up here, too. Yeah, that was a good, that turned out to be a, a brilliant move. Of course, at the time you did that, we didn't know it was going to be the hellacious event, you know, this ultra-extreme event that it ended up being. Brian here. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back on the Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast in just a minute. I were on on TV a lot, but I know you were on with everybody else as well. That Sunday just has to be kind of a blur to you. Do you remember, you know, the, what that day was like? I, I yeah, I think so because it certainly was uh, of concern, both personally and and a lot of our staff lived in the Cone area where the hurricane actually struck. Mm-hmm. Uh, my home was in the North Eye Wall. And Neil Frank's home, which he had sold, he wasn't there, he was in Houston at that time, was inland from me, but along the same path of the North Eye Wall. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we had a lot of staff members who had significant damage in that hurricane. So we were thinking about all those things. Yeah, I can um, I can imagine. Uh, and and, and you know, your family was gone, but I know not everybody's family was gone. So they had family in those uh, homes as well. And and when you work in the Hurricane Center, you work in the business uh, like I have for so long. I mean, you know what these storms can do. So it, it, it was it was something that was that day was something. When when you look at the radar, the Miami radar, as the storm is approaching, it looks like the Hurricane Center is just outside the eye. I mean, we know it wasn't because, I mean, the winds ripped through there. Uh, and we know that's misleading and probably because of the cone of silence around the radar, I guess, is what is making it making it uh, look that way. But talk about what was going on in the Hurricane Center during that time when the highest winds, including a gust to 164 uh, miles per hour on the roof, about 450 in the morning. Although I guess the gust could have been higher because when they found the anemometer, there was a cup off it. Right. We don't really know when the cup actually fell off, well, you know. When you when the building shook because the radar fell onto the roof, did you know what had happened? Uh, right, what had happened? We did because yeah. our radar stopped, I see. and then the dome that covers the radar antenna uh, that scans it had uh, blown apart and landed over in the Holiday Inn parking right. lot. And then this radar was up on sort of a little uh, uh, building of about I don't know, 10, 15 feet, something like that, like a penthouse. And then the antenna itself, which weighed a couple of tons, mm-hmm. fell off onto the roof, and that shook the, shook the building, and, of course, the radar was done. Yes, and uh, <laughs> so we had a reporter there that we talked to on the phone after that happened, and... And it, it scared the daylights out of everybody in the building. I mean, uh, but did you have, you had confidence, I guess, in, in the structure of the building and the, the Hurricane Center? Or was there a point there where, where you were getting pretty worried as, as, I mean, the building was moving, the 
boom from the roof. The window blew out behind the shutters. I mean, there was a lot going on there. Yes, it was, uh, again, about the sixth floor that we had in that building. And uh, now we had the shutters for all the way around. And as you indicated, one of the windows did blow out uh, behind a shutter on the uh, northeast side of the building, uh, but not in our operational area. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a little scary, no question about that. Yeah, the building was, uh, well, every building was shaking. It was, a, when you get these surges of wind, you could feel it in the buildings. Even in downtown Miami, where, where I was, we would feel that, kind of that deep, you know, uh, gust that would just vibrate the big concrete building where we were. So in all that wind, the radar off the roof, the satellite dishes were blown away. But you continued to operate, turn out advisories for the rest of Florida and for the northern Gulf Coast. How did you all do that? It wasn't easy. I can <laughs> tell you that. was We had some dedicated staff and our landlines were still good. Mm -hmm. So we were continuing to get in our radar and satellite data through uh, telephone lines, basically, into the hurricane center. So we still had the new radar that was up in uh, in the uh, Cape area, and so that was the new WSR-88D mm -hmm. radar, and we had Tampa Bay's radar over at Ruskin. So we had both of those things that we were able to bring in, mm -hmm. plus satellite imagery that we were able to bring in, and again, uh, dedicated staff sitting there doing that. Yeah, with no air conditioning, right? Uh, I mean, exactly. that must have gotten pretty freaking uncomfortable after a while with the computers turning out all the heat, not just the, the heat from, you know, because it was August. Yeah, we had everything, uh, we had everything we thought planned for. We had an emergency generator. We had uh, all that kind of system there, but the building had an emergency generator, which apparently failed. Mm -hmm. uh, so they weren't able to pump water up to the roof for the chillers. And so we lost the air conditioning and, and that was a problem. Uh, we did bring in some portable air conditioners over the next couple of days and kept operating. And mm -hmm. so again, we never missed an advisory. Uh, during that period of time, our responsibility was, was for the uh, Southwest coast of Florida and, and then the North Gulf coast, including the Louisiana area and New Orleans. So. We kept on going, and, and again, uh, our staff did a great job. I had sent my deputy, uh, Jerry Gerald, mm -hmm. and Miles Lawrence, one of our senior hurricane specialists, I had sent them to Washington, D.C. to be there in case we got knocked out. Mm -hmm. And they were there and ready to operate. They did a couple of uh, things up there, but fortunately, we, we never missed an advisory. Yeah, they were like on the last plane out, weren't they, on Sunday, uh, uh, you know, as the airlines were shutting down? Yes, they actually went up on the NOAA P-3. Oh, they did? So okay. they were evacuating that aircraft anyway, and so mm -hmm. they went up to Andrews Air Force Base and, and uh, out to NMC. Wow. So uh, when, when, during this time when, you know, everything is happening to us in, in South Florida, I remember uh, network people coming to me uh, at the TV station saying, this isn't going to New Orleans, <laughs> is it? But that was really, there was a time when that was 
you know, that was a, a reasonable possibility, wasn't it, that a strong hurricane in a couple of days could hit the New Orleans area? It was. Our forecast was slightly to the west, but indeed, it didn't take much of a wobble when you get a direct hit on New Orleans. Fortunately, it was to the west in the Louisiana there, and so uh, uh, they were spared. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, Hurricane Betsy was just to the west of New Orleans, too, and that was... That was the worst thing until Katrina came along and the, and the levees failed. So once you saw how strong Andrew was, you know, once we saw it approaching the Bahamas and, you know, as a, today the reckoning is a 170 mile an hour hurricane. But, you know, we saw it was a, a, a top end hurricane approaching the Bahamas that Sunday. And, you know, it was forecast to hit South Dade. I'm sure, you, you know, you thought in your mind, OK, this is going to be really bad but did you ever imagine how bad it was going to be how widespread the destruction ended up being even knowing that this you know ultra strong hurricane was coming well the the one good thing of all of this was that andrew was a very small hurricane yeah. so indeed it was a it was more like a 20 mile wide tornado mm -hmm. that moved across south florida so uh, the winds within that 20-mile swath were of a uh, a Fujita Cat 3 uh, going across the South Florida area. The thing that I was surprised by after the hurricane was the number of structures that were poorly built mm -hmm. in the Dade County area. I had uh, uh, built my home and had it built to uh, withstand a hurricane, and, and I thought, most buildings were but uh, unfortunately that was not true in the country walk area and some other areas down south yeah you ended up with 25 or 30,000 destroyed buildings i mean right. in a relatively small part of the metropolitan area it, uh, you know, essentially every building had damage and and like i said 25 or 30,000 destroyed it's really stunning so you said your house was in the northern eye wall uh, and i'm Sure, you knew there was going to be damage, but how did you find out about your house? And then um, I know you made an amazing trip down there to actually uh, check on it. Talk about that. Well, my uh, daughter that was the air traffic controller at that time, I sent her up here with my van and, and whatever she was could take with her. And then I had her little Jeep Suzuki. And so I drove down Old Cutler Road and the sidewalks and around everything to get to my house and, and found that it was uh, structurally in pretty good shape. Uh, there was a lot of damage, about $50,000 in damage, but uh, it was uh, certainly habitable. A tree fell on, on some part of it, right? Yes, a tree was on the roof. Uh, it had a, the concrete tile roof that I thought would never come off, but <laughs> There were sections that were stripped right off of that concrete tile. And then the later Dade changed the code uh, to require what they call mud, a full mud, right. underneath each tile, not just the edges of it. Yeah, so essentially got glued to the roof uh, yes. better. Well, you know, I was at uh, your home before, Andrew, and it was a fairly wooded area in... in uh, you know, suburban Miami, uh, surprised me that 
that the winds at the ground could have been as strong as they were, given all those trees and everything around, which tend to break up the, the winds. I mean, didn't it surprise you that there was as much, you know, as much damage there, even though it was in the, the northern eye wall? I just thought that, you know, the winds at the, at the ground level would get more disrupted. Well, a little bit more, of course. Yeah. I was fairly close to Biscayne Bay, a, a half a mile or so from Biscayne Bay, so right. you expect that. But then you go on in out to where the Metro Zoo is today, and the country walk area in that area was more northern-style homes, totally not built for the hurricane environment. So there was massive damage there. Yeah, and, and uh, other areas as well. So you, you go home, the hurricane hits, you go home, check on your house, and then you went back to the hurricane center, right? So this is like two days stretch here. When did you finally get to bed? I think maybe three days later, something yeah. like that I was there and on through the hurricane making landfall in the Louisiana area. Mm -hmm. And then I finally went home. Yeah. I can imagine that. Wow. I mean, we all were, were going nonstop, but uh, nobody like you, Bob, nobody like you. So you've seen damage before. I mean, you, you worked in hurricanes since the 60s. There were a lot of hurricanes in the 60s, and there were hurricanes in the 70s too, not, not as many. Uh, but when we went up, you and I on that Thursday, so three days after, we went up in a helicopter and, and uh, you know, sort of saw it close up, even though from the air. Uh, you had seen it from the ground. I had seen some of it from the ground by that time, but it was still shocking, wasn't it, this, the scope of the damage? It was the total destruction kind of thing across that 20-mile-wide swath was uh, shocking and uh, unexpected, but it was there. Yeah, and Herb Saffer, you know, famous uh, uh, engineer from uh, Miami, it was, uh, you know, Saffir Simpson scale, I mean, we, we certainly know Herb, and, and he was a good uh, instrumental part of the South Florida building code at the time before Andrew. And I remember him telling me how disappointed he was that it didn't do better, but I think just Andrew revealed every flaw that a normal hurricane wouldn't. Is, is that your assessment? I think so. Herb was a great person, a good friend, and one of the key things that I was surprised at was where you have what we call the the tie beam that goes around the top of the house mm -hmm. with steel straps coming out of that concrete wrapped around all of the trusses. But in this case, the tie beam was not tied to the footer. Right. Uh, I, I owned a, an investment house down in Whispering Pines at that time and across the street from it this house was just totally destroyed. That tie beam was picked up and the roof was uh, uh, deposited elsewhere. So normally hurricanes don't have enough strength to pick up a roof, pick up a huge concrete tie beam and, you know, toss it 100 yards. I mean, I think that's the thing is that Andrew was so off the charts just in terms of the amount of energy that was applied to these buildings that, you know, the hurricanes that we were used to, the, the Cleos and the Betsy's and these hurricanes just wouldn't have done that, right? It's, that's, that's the thing. This was just an exceptional, different breed. It was. It was certainly that uh, the strength of those winds 
was exceptional. And yet we had this uh, civil engineer from Clemson who came down and, and he said, does Bob Sheets get paid by the mile per hour when I'm <laughs> yeah. forecasting this hurricane? Yeah. And uh, so we were forecasting at that time, 145, I think gust of 165. That was the official forecast and of what we followed through with. But he didn't understand hurricanes at all. And uh, so indeed afterwards, they actually upped the numbers from what we had. Exactly. I remember that whole controversy and 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 i mean there was a lot of coverage of that it was in in the, the miami herald covered all that and you know how strong were the winds and i said just go look i mean just go look and compare it to past hurricanes and then you know use some common sense i totally agree so talking about the hurricane center so after the storm you know you guys kept going continuously even though it wasn't that busy a season but was that facility put back together like it was before, except for the radar on the roof, of course. I mean, there was a process to build the new Hurricane Center um, out at FIU, but, but you know, was, I can't remember, was the Coral Gables uh, Hurricane Center resurrected uh, after Andrew? Not totally. It was as far, you know, the radar was gone, mm-hmm. and they're not going to put it back because the new building and new facilities are coming along, uh, which we were fortunate to be able to put on the FIU campus and primarily to uh, uh, owe that to President Mitch Medik. Mm-hmm. And so it's out there. And then in that new for, for, forecast center, we tried to divide put in everything we could think of that went wrong in Andrew that we would not have going wrong there. Uh, For instance, uh, the telephone communications going in and out of the building in two different directions through two different centers. So if one center gets knocked out, you still got the other. And then uh, Herb Saffer, I got him to uh, uh, be a consultant on the engineering of that building. And so there was basically a vault that was built, which was the, the restrooms, mm-hmm. so that that place is occupable, even with a Category 5 hurricane. Yes, I know that uh, I know that, that building was your vision and uh, is, a, is a tremendous legacy. And FIU, Florida International University president, uh, Mitch Medik, who really was instrumental in crafting that university and making it a, a great university that it... Uh, that it is to today, uh, you know, we had this confluence of, of circumstances that came together and kind of ironically, isn't it that, you know, it's back on a university campus and now FIU does a lot of hurricane research, kind of takes you back to when you started and it was on the University of Miami campus and you had this synergy with the, the university all in one place there. Yes, that was uh, one of the things that uh, I wanted to do was to get the center back to a university campus as compared to Gables One Tower, and uh, the FIU uh, facility became available, the land, I should say, became available, which was all f- former federal land. It was Tamiami Airport. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and uh, so with President Madik, uh, we were able to uh, get that you know, couple acres, three acres, whatever it is there, and put the center up and put it together uh, to take the lessons from Andrew to be able to build a facility that could be occupied even in a Category 5 hurricane. 
Yeah, it's a it's a bunker out there. There's no there's no question about it. Well, Bob, that the building and uh, all your work has been a you've left a great uh, legacy in the hurricane program. I mean, you're instrumental in in the way we do uh, hurricanes today, and it's really great to talk to you again. Okay, thank you, Brian. All right, thank you. Be well. And I'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back. You cannot overstate what a tour de force the job Bob Sheets did during Andrew was. In fact, the entire crew at the Hurricane Center went far beyond what I think any of them thought was even possible. It was simply an off-the-chart situation that nobody could have envisioned. After Andrew, an idea was circulated to move the Hurricane Center out of Miami, out of the way of hurricanes. I was officially interviewed by the Weather Service brass about that. I said, absolutely not. Miami is where hurricane people live. And that's absolutely true even today. Bob Sheets had the vision of the new Hurricane Center being a bunker, which is indeed what it is today. On the next part of the podcast, I'll talk with another hero of Hurricane Andrew, Kate Hale. When Kate had had enough, the bureaucracy between the state of Florida and the federal government, it was the George H.W. Bush administration at the time, well, it was not functioning. And she stood up and said, where's the cavalry on this one? And so much more. The pressure on Washington became too great, and the U.S. military came to the rescue. More, much more on the Hurricane Andrews story is coming up in the next podcast with Kate Hale. Be sure you subscribe to our Tracking the Tropics podcast so you can always get an alert when a new podcast is posted. And remember to download the Fox Weather app. First, you can get your local forecast without a bunch of annoying ads. And you can watch the live stream of Fox Weather on your phone or your iPad by just touching there in the upper right. And you can watch Fox Weather at foxweather.com or on the Roku channel, YouTube TV, Amazon Fire, Fios TV, and lots of other platforms, and it is always free. So I'll see you there on the Fox Weather stream when the tropics are active, and follow me on Twitter, at B Norcross, and on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next part of this special Hurricane Andrew 30th anniversary podcast, I'm Brian Norcross. Be well, and stay informed. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.